0: Amen. Well, good morning. If you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we're going to finish up. uh, Acts chapter 19 this morning we will begin in verse 21. Uh, Before I go, I want to uh, say a a quick thank you to Gordy. Is Gordy in here? Is he watching the door like normal? Wherever Gordy is, uh, a quick thank you. Uh, We missed worshiping with you guys last week. It was uh, a bummer that we weren't able to be here with you guys. But but Gordy was, and he did an excellent job proclaiming the word last week. And so thank you, Gordy, now that I can see him. Uh, thank you, Gordy, for faithfully proclaiming the word last week. Uh, to our Yeah, give him a round of applause. Thank you, Gordy. Acts chapter 19 is we we're going to be this morning. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 21, it says this. Now, after these events, uh, these are the events uh, in the middle of chapter 19, the the sorcery, the, uh, the people of Ephesus burning their uh, magic books. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way or concerning Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word speaks to us. God, that you have decided to, to speak to us through Scripture. That, that the, you who, who created all things are, are in control of all things. You who, who made us and formed us and have complete sovereignty and rule over all. God, that you have decided to speak to us through your word. You have decided to communicate with us, Father. I pray that we would listen. I pray this morning as we, as we dive into your word that we would understand what it is that you are teaching us, Father, that we would have ears to hear it and we would have hearts that are ready to apply it, God, that we would leave here different, we would leave here better because of our time in the word this morning. Father, we love you and we praise you and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Now, when I was growing up, uh, a group of friends and I would regularly play a game called capture the flag. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Capture the Flag, but essentially you get a field, and both, each team has a flag or some object that they hide, uh, and you have to go find the other team's flag, you have to capture it, grab it, and make it back to your side of the field before getting tagged. If you get tagged, you go to jail, you probably spend a good portion of the game sitting there waiting for someone to bail you out, and so, uh, so you have to run, grab the flag, bring it back to your side before getting caught. We loved playing Capture the Flag, so a group of us would play pretty frequently, we loved doing it. Uh, And the problem was, not only would we play during the day, a lot of the times, most of the time, we would play at night. Because it's so much more fun. There was a sports complex near our house. Had a couple football fields, uh, two baseball fields, and a lot of woods around it. And it was the perfect location to play capture the flag at night. So we would get glow sticks, two glow sticks. Those would be the flags. Your team had to hide the glow stick somewhere you could see it. And you'd be able to run back and forth in pitch black darkness with no street lights, nothing but the moonlight, running back and forth trying to find these flags and grab it without getting caught. Loved doing it. And one, of the day, one day we were playing, uh, there's a... Uh, a, a dugout in both of the softball fields, uh, and, and this dugout in the softball field had a chain-link fence around it, and for some reason, I'm not really sure the design purposes, but they decided to put a chain-link fence in the dugout, like in the middle of it, uh, and so you'd, if you're in the dugout, you have to walk around this chain-link fence to, in order to go out and to bat. There's just a random fence there in the middle of it, it I think it's just the only design is to be in the way, and, uh, and so we, were, we, were, we told everyone ahead of time, be careful in the dugout, because when it's nighttime, you can't see that little uh, fence in the moonlight, right? It's really hard to, to see. And so we told everyone, don't run in the dugout. Just kind of walk your way through it. Just be really careful. Uh, but of course, we were young. Nobody listens. So we're all running around. You know, when, when, when it's the middle of a game, like you are, your adrenaline's up, you're running. Nobody's walking through a dugout when you're in enemy territory. And so, uh, and so I had a friend. I'm going to call him Seth. I didn't give him... I, I didn't get permission from him to use his name, so uh, I, I'm gonna call him Seth. But I had a friend who was running on in enemy territory, trying to find the flag. He makes his way into the dugout, and he is full sprint, about to run out of the dugout, forgetting that there's a chain link fence right there. And he run just like he ran full force right into the chain link fence, like not a brace, didn't brace himself at all, like face first. Boom, right into the chain link fence. Like to this day, it's like a cartoon. There's a little imprint of him as he's running, you know, in the chain link fence. Like little kids get up to bat to this day and are like, who's that, you know, in the chain link fence? Like he, he ran so hard <laughs> into that chain link fence, ended up losing two of his bottom teeth. He's okay now, so we can laugh about it. But he had a mission, right? He had an objective. He had a purpose for which he was trying to run. And that fence stood firmly opposed to him. Right? That fence did a great job of stopping him and slowing him down. The thing is, as Christians... We've been talking about this second half, this third half, uh, third portion of the book of Acts. We've been talking about having a uh, being a church that goes to the nations, right? We've talked about what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to go out to the world. What does it look like for for the kingdom of God to expand? What, what does that look like? The fact of the matter is that as we are seeing the kingdom of God expand, there are forces that are coming against the church, forces that work against. the the work of God, that are trying to stop the advance of the kingdom of God. There are forces that will come against us as a church, forces that will come against the work of God, and forces that will come against the work of God in our own lives. Now, when I say that, you might be thinking of, uh, you know, maybe we're going to hear a story about a a tyrannical government. that's going to rise up and try to squash Christianity. Maybe we're going to hear uh, a, a story about uh, this oppressor who's going to come up and try to close down the churches. But that's not at all what the story is actually about. Paul has a plan here at the beginning of Acts, uh, or here in Acts 19, verse 21. He says, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass to Macedonia, then to Achaia, then Jerusalem, and then to Rome. So Paul has this plan of what he wants to do. He is, he is seeing the spirit of God move in a, in a powerful, mighty way in the city of Ephesus, and he wants to see it continue, so he has this plan, uh, but Paul faces opposition. There's an opposition to this plan, and specifically, Paul faces opposition from greedy men. The the idea that comes against Paul, the thing that that stops the advance of the kingdom of God or tries to stop the advance of the kingdom of God, the thing that, that rises in opposition to the advance of the kingdom of God is a group of people that idolize wealth the group of people whose God is their money. There are two things that we're going to see in the text this morning about idolizing wealth. Two things we're going to see in the text this morning about, about making wealth our God. The first thing is this. Wealth is a popular God. Wealth is a very popular God. Look with me in verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. And he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Demetrius' concern here is that he might lose out on money. Like the thing that he is most concerned about and the thing that he has gathered this group of men together about is the fact that their bottom line is going to be impacted by the advance of the gospel. And just to close it out, he uses verse 27. He uses this line, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. He doesn't care about Artemis. And we'll find out even more about that later in the story. He doesn't care that their religious devotion is being, uh, uh, that people are leaving the goddess Artemis. He doesn't really care about the the Roman gods or the Greek gods where they, they worship there in Ephesus. He doesn't care about that. What he's most concerned about and what this group of craftsmen are concerned about is the fact that their business may be harmed if more people become Christians. The thing that they are most in fear of is losing money. Not just basic Business math, right? If your company uh, does 100% of your business with people who worship idols and more and more people become Christians, that's not looking very good for your bottom line, right? If, if 100% of the business that you do is creating idols for people to worship and more, people, more and more people are saying that idols are not gods, then you're probably going to miss out on some money, right? In business school, we learned a SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, the fact that people are turning away from idols, a really big threat if your business is making idols, right? It's not a good thing for the future prospects of your business, but that's what they're most concerned about. And I want you to think about, think about this for half a second, right? Demetrius and these craftsmen are seeing God move in a powerful way in the city of Ephesus and throughout Asia. He said as much, right? He said, In verse 26, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. So Demetrius and the craftsmen are witnessing a powerful movement of God in Ephesus and and the surrounding area. Right, just think back to the text that we talked about last week that Gordy preached on. This is uh, there are a, a massive group of people in Ephesus who are placing their faith in Jesus, who are coming into into eternal life in Jesus Christ, and they are throwing away their sorcery books, they are throwing away their magic, they are throwing away all the things that they thought gave them life, and they're witnessing this revival break out in the city of Ephesus. And we know from previous weeks that it's also spreading in surrounding regions. So revival is breaking out, churches are being planted, people. Are placing their faith in Jesus. It's an incredible work of God in the two years that Paul has been at Ephesus. These people, Demetrius and the craftsmen, are seeing God move in a powerful way and they're watching it happen. And instead of saying, hey, I want some of that, instead they're saying, hey, this is going to hurt the bottom line. And this is going to cost me money. This is going to hurt. My financial security, this is is going to, to, to mess up my bank account. That's what they are most concerned about. Instead of being excited and joining in to a movement of God, seeing God actually move, instead they are clinging to their actual God, which is money. They are clinging to the thing that they have placed their hope and their satisfaction and their life in. How do you know if someone has made wealth an idol? Look at Demetrius and the craftsmen, where they will not participate in the work of God because it might hurt the bottom line, where they have staked their security. They have staked their life, their satisfaction, their joy. They have staked it on their business, and they have decided that the amount of money in their account Their 401k, their IRA, their other stock portfolios, the amount of money that are in those accounts are going to determine how they feel, how they live, and how they act. That all of their hopes are wrapped up in these business prospects and the amount of money they might have. This is a group of people whose God is wealth. And the fact of the matter is, before you judge them, the fact of the matter is that wealth is a popular God. I didn't say wealth, was a popular God. Wealth is a popular God. You look at our community. You look out to where we live. We may have a community that is widely impacted by Christian morals, but but it's it goes without saying I think that that there's a good chunk of our community that have idolized wealth and have made wealth their God. Where the thing that drives so many people in our community is the amount of money in their bank account and their financial security. The things that people have staked their hope and their lives on is the amount of money they have. I mean, go out and have conversations with people, depending, and depending on how the market is doing, it's going to be tangibly different. Right, where if the market is up, people will be happier, people will be more excited, people will feel more secure in their life. But if the market is down, people will be more anxious, people will be more worried, people will be more reserved. Right? You can see the market have a tangible impact on the community. Because people have staked everything they are on their bank account or people who have started businesses and that business is their entire life all of their security all of their joy all of their all of their satisfaction is tied up into the success of that business we have people in our community that are living to have nicer houses and better cars and better toys because they think that maybe those things will provide them a little boost of happiness, a little boost of joy, and at the very least, maybe the compliments they get from other people when they see them is going to give them a little boost of happiness and a little boost of joy. Wealth is a major idol in our community. Materialism has, has taken root in our community. All around us, people are staking their life on the amount of money they have and the toys that they can buy and how well their money is doing in the markets. Wealth is a popular God. It is wildly popular to to put your faith, your hope, your safety, your security in your money. And that's a problem. Because the second thing that we see in this text is that wealth is a powerless God. It is a popular God to choose, but it is a powerless God at the end of the day. Look at me, verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. So the scene gets wild really fast, right? Demetrius gets these craftsmen together. And he says, guys, our bottom line is going to get hurt if God keeps moving in this area. Like, our bottom line is, gonna get, uh, is going to be effective if people start turning away from idols. Then they get up in this huge uproar. Great is the goddess Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the whole city catches on. They're like, oh, what's going on? And they start joining in to this huge uproar that is breaking out in the city, and they drag two Christians, Gaius and Aristarchus, into the theater, and the whole theater is just erupting in confusion and chaos. A riot is starting to break out, and Paul, he wants to go in. He wants to quiet the crowd. He wants to give a defense for Christianity, and people are holding him back. Like, it probably wasn't this dramatic, but I'm just picturing, like, a movie scene where Paul is, like, lunging towards the theater and everyone's holding him back, like, no, Paul, you can't go in. Like, this is this huge riot breaking out in the theater, and Paul wants to go in, but he can't go in because it's dangerous on his life, and there's Confusion, there's yelling, there's chaos that is breaking out in this theater. Verse 32, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this Riot is breaking out in the theater. People are, are yelling. People are saying one thing. Some are saying the others. Half of the group there is like, I don't even know why we're here. I gotta, we're mad, but I don't know why. And they all, they're all shouting. And so they put, together, they put up this Jew, a guy named Alexander, who is supposed to quiet everybody, is supposed to calm this down and explain everything. Uh, but the group is not only confused. The group is not only violent and angry. The group, at uh, this point, is also experiencing uh, anti-Semitism where the group sees that he's a Jew and says, whoa, 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 we're against everybody who's not for Artemis of Ephesus. We're against the Jews, we're against the Christians, they can't really tell them apart at this point. And so Alexander gets up as a Jew and they say, we don't want to listen to you. And for two hours they scream, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Side note, what a waste of time. Right, two hours, like Luke goes out of his way to pinpoint that they yelled this for two hours straight. Like that just seems like a crazy waste of time. But what that does show us is the, the, the excitement, the furor, the, the level of energy that is present in this crowd that they for two hours will stand there and shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Notice what happens when greed has taken hold of the situation. And notice what happens when, when greed is 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 leading uh, uh, Demetrius and these craftsmen. Like, first off, their God is so powerless that they have to stand up and fight for it. Like, like wealth is so fleeting that they have to get up and fight to hold on to it because it's flying away from them. Like, how powerless is your God? How empty is the thing that you put satisfaction in? If you have to get up and try to hoard it because it's flying away from you. Like, there's nothing in wealth that is going to give you life or satisfaction. Their God is powerless. And when they've been motivated by greed, when the craftsmen are leading with greed, notice what this what this scene produces. It produces confusion. It produces violence. It produces racism. It produces this, this scene that is filled with animosity. Like when you see the Spirit of God take over someone's life, when you see the kingdom of God expand, you, you hear stories of peace and life entering in. You hear stories of grace and forgiveness. You hear stories of, of eternal life coming, but when greed has taken hold, when wealth is our God, you see nothing but confusion and violence and racism and, 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 and furor and anger. You see nothing but, but, uh, but what sin produces, which is death. Wealth is a popular God, but wealth is a powerless God can do absolutely nothing to save us, and it does nothing for us. It can only produce hurt and pain and death when we put our hope and our trust and our safety and our security with something that's fleeting. Verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, it takes a a respected individual getting up. He quieted the crowd after these two hours of yelling. He said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper to the great Artemis uh, and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? We have no idea what that means. could be a meteor that they they believed in. There's no archaeological evidence really telling us what that means. There's just some kind of stone that they really worship. But anyways, we don't know that, but they knew it at the time, uh, that they are keeper of uh, of the great Artemis and sacred stone that fell from the sky. Verse 36, seeing then... That these things cannot be denied. You ought to be quiet and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. So what, what, uh, what this town clerk, what the city official does is he gets up and he quiets the crowd and he says, look, everybody knows that the city of Ephesus houses the temple of Artemis. This isn't under debate. This isn't a big deal. And he, pinned, he, he singles out Demetrius and the craftsmen and he, he exposes the, the riot for what it is. He says, this isn't about Artemis. This isn't about religious devotion to the Roman gods. This isn't about uh, your your anger because people are leaving uh, your faith. This is about greed. This is about wealth because we're looking at people who they haven't. They're not uh, the the uh, the city the town clerk says they. Uh, they are not, these people are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. He means that, that these Christians, they haven't entered the temple. They haven't graffitied the walls. They haven't stolen the uh, religious artifacts. They haven't burned down the building. Like, they're not doing anything illegal or harmful to the goddess that we serve. Right? They're not doing anything other than presenting Christianity as an alternative. Right? So they're not, they're not breaking any laws. They haven't done anything illegal. And so you're not here because you're mad about uh, Artemis. You're not here because you're mad that they are worshiping other gods. If Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. In, in Roman law, it was uh, a major penalty for an entire town to be involved in rioting. So, if your town was, uh, was deemed to have, uh, to, to have rioted, then it was a, the, the Roman authorities could really hammer down on you as a town. And they said, so this clerk says, look, we're, we're going to be charged with rioting. Everybody go home. And everyone goes home. And what's fascinating about that is that the story really doesn't amount to anything. Right They get into the they throw this riot, they get into the theater, there's lots, all this confusion. people are yelling for several hours, but at the end of the day, the town clerk gets up, he says, "This isn't a big deal. Everybody go home. Everyone goes home. Luke has devoted a, a lot of space to give us a story that really doesn't have any bearing on any. Paul's not kicked out of the city here like he is after a lot of persecution. In fact, Paul's plan is already to leave Ephesus soon. so Uh, there's very little bearing on anything that the story holds. So why would Luke spend so much space telling us the story? Why would Luke write out this entire account if it it doesn't really go anywhere, it doesn't have much to do with anything? Well, there are a few interesting points to this story. A few things that are fascinating. One of the things that's interesting to me is the fact that this is the, the first instance of Gentile opposition to Christianity in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts so far, think with me, Paul has gone into a city, he's preached the gospel in the synagogues, he's been kicked out of the synagogues, and then the, the Jewish leaders have risen up and they've kicked Paul out of the city. So in city after city after city, it's the Jewish religious leaders who have risen up and kicked Paul out of their city, but not in Ephesus. This is the first example of non-Jews being angry getting up and kicking Paul out of their city. It's the first example of opposition coming from the Gentiles. And notice what their opposition stands for. It's greed. It's an example of of wealth. People who have idolized wealth standing in opposition to the kingdom of God. And what's even more fascinating about this passage is that the Christians are largely absent from it. But the Christians are not present in this story. Luke has devoted a major chunk of Scripture at a time when, when every word, every page was very expensive to produce. Luke has written a major chunk of Scripture telling us a story where the Christians are largely absent. Right? We get a brief mention of Gaius and Aristarchus, but we don't get any mention of them after that. Right? There's no mention that they died, there's no mention that they were tortured. Like, there's no mention of any of that. And then Paul shows up like a cameo in a Marvel movie. like he just, he just walks in and he wants to have something to do with the story, but they won't let him. Like, it's not a big deal. And so Paul just is briefly there. And, but we, it, it, for the most part, in a large part, Christians are absent from this story. I think that's on purpose. Because what Paul paint, or what Luke paints here. It's a picture of people whose God is their wealth. A picture of people who have idolized money. A picture of people who, who are greedy and, and their entire, their, their, the love of their heart is for gain. And Christians are not among them. The, the, this group of people whose, whose love is for money, Christians are not among them. And that's what I want us to see this morning. You can worship wealth or you can trust in Jesus. You can't do both. You can be in the group of people who have put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus, or you can be in the group of people who have idolized money and his love is in their bank account. But you cannot be in both camps. It's like Jesus said, uh, you can love the one and hate the other. You can hate the one and love the other. Like, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot worship wealth and trust in Jesus at the same time. One of those is going to be your God. And the truth of, truth of the matter is that when you, our, we idolize wealth, when, when that becomes our God, when greed is what defines us, then we are in opposition to the kingdom of God. There's no place for greed in the kingdom of God. There's no place for, for people to worship their bank account, to place all of their hope and their trust and their security in, what the, in, in their markets. Like, there's no place for that in a kingdom where Christ is on the throne. So I want you to think about our community. Our community where materialism is rampant, where, where you know, if we were to build an altar in our community, the odds of it being an altar to money is probably pretty high. Uh, think about that community. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how conservative our community is, it doesn't matter how informed of Christian values they are or how religious they are. If if money is the, the, the idol that we worship, if, if greed is what defines us, then it doesn't matter how close to Christianity they may be. They are in opposition to the kingdom of God. And it's subtle and it's insidious because they're not rising up to close down churches. Right? They're not getting up to try to, to try to shut us down and keep us from worshiping on Sunday mornings. But, but think about it this way. I like to think about the, the rich young ruler. Right? If you want to know if wealth is your God or if you're trusting in Jesus, think of the rich young ruler. If Jesus were to come up to you today, he were to say that I, I want you to follow me, but in order to do that, you have to sell your house, you have to sell your cars, you have to cash out all of your stocks, you have to empty your savings account, your checking account, and you have to put it all in this one investment that I tell you to put it in. But that company is going to go bankrupt tomorrow. And those owners, those CEOs are going to run away with your money and you're not, you're not going to get a dime back. And everything that you've ever worked for, every dime that you've ever saved, every penny that you've ever earned, everything that you've built and worked for your entire life will be gone tomorrow. And then you can follow me. How many people in our community would hear that proposition and say, you know what, it seems like a lot of work. It seems like a little much for me. I, I like you, Jesus. I might come to church every now and then. I might sing a song to you. I may even say a prayer. I may even get baptized. But at the end of the day, that's too much for me. How many of us in this room would hear that proposition and say, "You know what? I like you, Jesus, but but I have worked so hard to save up the money I have. I have worked so hard and have been so wise to get the, the bank account that I have today to, to see my money in the markets. I, my whole life is in there. Everything that I've worked for, every, every hour that I've ever spent on the job has been put towards this. My security, my retirement is in there. And so I, I love you, Jesus. You're, you're good and all, but but I don't know that I could give up everything that I've ever worked for, everything that I've ever built, everything that I've ever owned in order to follow you. In which case, at the end of the day, wealth is the God and not Jesus. Money is the thing that drives us and not Jesus. Jesus. So as the kingdom of God is expanding, as the gospel is going forth, as we are seeing people come to know Jesus, there's no religious affections being stirred up in our hearts. There's no excitement and joy and desire to know Jesus and and to participate because at the end of the day, the God is money and not Jesus. So uh, I want us to see this morning that, that for some of you here, what God may be calling you to do is to repent and to place your faith in Jesus. To, to abandon the God of your heart, to abandon your love of money, to abandon the security and the hope and the life that you've placed in riches and turn that over and say, Jesus, I'm following after you. I'm a big fan of of incremental changes. I think the the Bible talks about the, the incremental changes of sanctification that we are slowly are growing in the image of Jesus. But what the Bible also talks about are these big, grand moments of change in our lives. And when someone places their faith in Jesus, there is a big, monumental change. I think just... Just last week to the text that we covered, these people who have placed their faith in Jesus their entire lives, they have been living with, with hope and, and, um, and joy in these magic books trying to protect them. And at the end of the day, once they place their faith in Jesus, they cast these magic books into a fire. They throw them away because there's nothing there for them. And the the text says that the amount of books that they've thrown away into the fire was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And they said, look, it doesn't matter how much it's worth. It doesn't matter what it used to be worth to me. At the end of the day, I'm following Jesus. And it's no coincidence that the very next story is about a silversmith named Demetrius where this group of people throw away and burn books worth 50,000 pieces of silver because all they want is Jesus. And the next story is the guy who works with silver saying, I can't do this Jesus thing because it's going to hurt the bottom line. Like What we're seeing is a radical transformation with how you view money, how you view life, how you view joy and satisfaction. When you put your faith in Jesus, there, everything changes. And on the other spectrum is the guy who's got his money saying, I can't touch that. In America and in our society, we are so comfortable just adding Jesus to our love of money, where we keep on doing everything else that we've already done. We keep loving money just as we always have. Money is still the thing that drives us. We, we see sharks on Shark Tank whose goal is money, and we see them as icons to be emulated, and we keep going forward trying to figure out how to put our, our safety, our security, and finances, and then we just add Jesus to that. We just add religious language to that. We just add a little bitty incremental change when at the end of the day, what the Word of God is calling for is to abandon everything we have once loved, everything we have once put our stock in, and to trust in Jesus. So, Some of us today need to get rid of our love of money. I'm not saying get rid of everything. I'm not saying get rid of anything. But to stop loving and putting your hope and your trust and your security and your finances and to turn to Jesus to trust in him as your savior and lord. Your wealth, as good as it may be today. Or your lack of wealth, as hard as it may be today. None of those things can save you. You will never reach a certain dollar amount where you will be satisfied. Or a certain dollar amount where you will be secure and safe. None of those things can give you life. But Jesus Christ died and rose again to give you eternal life. Stop putting your life in money. Stop trusting and hoping and loving cash and start putting your faith in Jesus. Some of you would say, you know what? I know how I would answer that. I, if, if Jesus came to me and said I had to lose everything and then I could follow him, I would do it, but it'd be really hard. For a lot of us, we, we, Jesus is, is our God and, and that's 100% true, but there's still some misplaced affections that we have on finances, where when the market is up, we're a little more excited and the market is down and we're a little more fearful and we, have, we, have the wrong, we still have the wrong ideas about money, but Jesus is still our God. If that's the case, what I encourage you this morning is to not give the enemy an opportunity to take your eyes off of Jesus because of your finances. Don't give the enemy a foothold or an opportunity to distract you from what God has called you to do because of financial reasons the end of the day, what the Word of God is calling us to do is to trust in Jesus. You can worship wealth, or you can trust in the One who has died and risen again to give you eternal life. But you cannot do both. In just a moment, we're going to sing. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we sing, if that's you this morning, and you know that deep down your greatest affection, the thing that you put most of your security in, is in your finances. What the Word of God is calling you to do today is to repent and to turn to Jesus. If there's anything that you worship other than Jesus Christ this morning, the Word of God is calling you to put your hope and your faith in the only one that can save you. And if that's you, after I pray, we're gonna sing. I'm gonna be standing right here. If that's you, I invite you to come talk to me. Uh, tell me that you want to follow Jesus. I'll pray with you. And we have people who would love to talk with you about what it means to follow Jesus. If you don't want to walk up here, well, have people in the back as well who would love to talk with you about what it means. To follow Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is powerful, and I thank you that it's powerful because Jesus Christ, your son, died and rose again to give us eternal life, and you are telling us about it in your word. You are showing us the beauty of Christ Jesus in the gospel, the glory that is available and God, the emptiness of the things that we put our faith and our hope in. Because when Christ returns and all is done away with, when the world is done away with, and all sin and brokenness and evil is done away with, all of our wealth, every dollar that we've ever saved, every dime that we have will be gone. Because it will not matter forever. Forever. God, faith in Jesus is the only thing that provides life. I pray this morning, for if there's anyone here who does not know you, Father, I pray that this morning that they would go from death to life, that they would see the radical transformation of leaving behind a life of death and depravity, a life of of brokenness and sin and turning towards you. Father, I pray for, for those of us who know you, who trust in you, who love Jesus, who We follow him as our Savior God. I pray that we would abandon any other notions, any other loves, any other affections and devote everything to you and nothing would take our eyes off of Jesus. We love you and we praise you. It's in the precious, holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.